choir, Tim. Church is great to see you today. Glad that you're here. We've had a good weekend uh, already. We uh, had a couples conference with Joey and Sadie Dotson Friday night. And Saturday, 11 or 12 couples up here working on our marriages, learning a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian marriage. And I, I think probably the couples conference is one of those things where we invoke the rule, what happens at the couples conference stays at the couples conference, but uh, it, was, it was good, uh, and we really uh, were glad to be a part of that, and glad to be here this morning with you to worship the Lord, and I hope that you will continue in an attitude of worship as we look in God's Word. Open your Bible up with me, would you, to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, get your bulletin out, and uh, get a pencil or a pen, let's take a few notes as we go along this morning. We're in uh, verse 16 in Genesis chapter 4. Verse 16 uh, in Genesis chapter 4 in the NIV says, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is a son of Adam and Eve. Abel was his brother, but due to jealousy, he murdered his brother. God was gracious to Cain, and instead of Taking life for life in this particular instance, he showed Cain mercy and he allowed him to live, although he moved even further away from God's presence than his parents, Adam and Eve, had. They were outside of the garden. Now he's moving even further away as we see this progression of humanity slipping quickly away from God's presence. Verse 17, Cain lay with his wife, and we just have to stop right here real quickly and say, uh, the Bible never tells us exactly where Cain's wife came from. It's clear from the next chapter that Adam and Eve had daughters, and so presumably Cain, at this point in humanity, it was uh, okay for men to take their wives uh, from their sisters. Later on, there was no need for that. But Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. City doesn't necessarily mean millions of people here. The word in the uh, ancient Hebrew could mean just a town or a community. But we see that uh, humanity is beginning to multiply and to gather into communities. And Cain is part of that. Cain's mercy is paying off, at least for now. He has the opportunity to have a family, to have children, and to have a career. God put a mark on him so that no one would come and take vengeance because he was the murderer of Abel. And so he has been given a a new life, a second chance by God, and here's what he's doing with it. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now, this doesn't mean that each generation only had one child or even one son, but this is the son through whom the lineage or the genealogy was, uh, was figured uh, to get to this man, Lamech. Notice in Mahujael and Methushael's name, They end with L. A lot of Old Testament names end with L. L is the generic name for God in the Old Testament. El Shaddai, for instance, and uh, El Elyon, 
uh, God all high. And so their names had uh, some tip of the hat, at least, to the existence of God. Uh, but let's move on. Verse 19, it says, Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of all those who live in tents and raise livestock, literally the father of, but that's a figurative phrase in ancient Hebrew that means that he's the one who started out this way of living. So anyone who did it that way would be considered a son of his. It's not literally a father-son relationship. His brother name, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father or the starter, if you will, the instigator of all who play the harp and the flute. I remember years ago when I read through this part of Genesis and I saw that, I went, wow, Jubal, the first musician, I've got to meet him someday. He's got to be a cool cat, you know, the guy that started music out. Jubal, verse 22, Zillah also had a son. Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naama. So we see here culture, community, very quickly beginning to coalesce generation after generation after Adam and Eve leave the garden. And uh, notice that when it talks about Tubal-Cain, it doesn't say that he is the father of metallurgy. These verses are not meant to say anything positive or negative about the idea that there was a Stone Age and then a Calcolithic Age and then a Bronze Age and then an Iron Age. Put all of that out of your mind. We're just saying here that Tubal-Cain was the guy that sort of started technology, very basic technology. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Lamech is a poet. These are parallelisms, and in most of our uh, English translations now, it's probably set up as poetry in your Bible there. There's uh, two lines, and then another two lines, and they're probably meant to be uh, saying the same thing twice, just like the first Two lines, he says, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. That's line one. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. That's line two. He's saying the same thing twice. He's probably saying the same thing twice in lines three and four. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Some people think that he killed two, two men, uh, that it's not a parallelism. It doesn't matter. The point is that he's a poet. He's a poet. He's got a son who's a musician. Uh, and apparently that son uh, has inspired him, and he is a poet. Or maybe his poetry inspired his son. We don't know which way. But it's a troubling poem, isn't it? It's a poem, but the content of it is a little disturbing. He's writing a poem about killing someone. His poem is about the fact that somebody hurt him, and because he was hurt, he took vengeance or revenge. And he killed them. Nevertheless, clearly what's happening here in this narrative is we're beginning to see human culture and society come together very early, uh, very early, something that God has given us the ability to do. What would Jubal and Jabel and Tubal-Cain think if they could see uh, technology and culture today? Can you imagine uh, what they would think? Our technology is just, it's mind-bending. 
especially the, the speed at which it's unfolding now. You know, a child could have been there to see the historic flight of the Wright brothers at Kitty, Kitty Hawk, and that same child would just have been starting to get his or her social security checks when the Apollo, uh, the Apollo astronauts made that historic step onto the, the face of the moon. That's pretty fast, changes in technology. And those NASA computers that probably would have filled this sanctuary up that helped them get to the moon and back uh, can't do everything that, you've, that your phone that slips in your pocket now can do, your smartphone. And we love our technology, don't we, in our culture? We love it. I mean, we love our cell phones so much that we can't stop using them even while we're driving, And now somebody has come up with an app to keep you from using your cell phone while you're driving, and someone else said, well, we just need to come up with an app that makes them use that app. But we love our technology. It's a reflection of our personality. There's art in our technology, and it reflects who we are as a people, and that's part of what God gave us to do. Uh, uh, I still love a lot of the things about the culture and the technology that I've seen as I'm growing up, I still love to see a 1957 Chevy two-door hardtop sedan with like 150 coats of glossy cherry red paint and oversized tires and the big fins sticking up in the back. You know what I'm talking about? And a fossil fuel-eating V8 that's so big you have to cut a hole in the hood and it hangs out. You know, I love that. It's fun. I still, if I'm, if I'm turning the, the radio and I hear Kansas play uh, Carry On My Wayward Son, I have to stop and listen to that, you know. I still get my Charles Schultz books out and read Peanuts uh, comics from back in the 1960s. Uh, in 1970s. I still love to put a movie in with John Wayne in it and listen to him and find out where he's going to put that pause in the sentence, you know? Uh, and all of that, that's old stuff. You know, this, this technology and culture, just new layer after new layer after new layer, just very quickly is being added up. And if you listen, you can hear at times a, uh, a sadness a hollowness. Occasionally somebody will pick up the guitar and write a song and say, the thrill is gone. The thrill has gone away. Somewhere between Cape Canaveral and Kitty Hawk, human imagination came up with a device, not much bigger than this piano up here, that you could drop from tens of thousands of feet in the air, and before it hit the ground... It would detonate, and an entire city of people would be obliterated in an instant, in the blink of an eye. And if we could walk around in the carnage that was there after that happened, we would think that we took the wrong door and we've stepped into the suburbs of hell somehow. Now, I know that that had to be done. It was the right choice. It stopped a war. But something happened to the human soul after that. There was, a, there was a collective feeling that we weren't driving technology anymore. Technology was driving us, and it's driving us toward a cliff. And it's not a physical cliff. It's a real cliff. It's a dangerous place. We have this love-hate relationship. 
with our technology and with our culture and with our art. There's so many things about it that are, that are beautiful and, and enticing, but there's so many things about it, too, that can be very ugly, and they drag us down. Strange relationship we have with this technology. We've had it for a long, long, long time, all the way back to Jabel and Jubal and Tubal Cain. And, and one of the things that's most troubling about it is the poet can be a murderer. The poet can be a murderer. Lamech had the heart of an artist, but the hand of a violent man. That's not the way that it was meant to be. It's true that God took, when he made Adam, he, he, he scooped together the dust of the earth, and we are embedded in this world. We're embedded in our culture. There's no way for us to get out of it. But that's not all that he did. He breathed into his nostrils the breath, the wind, the spirit of life. That's what's missing a lot of times when we look at our culture. There's something that is missing, and it's spiritual. There's something missing, and it's spiritual. Here's the first thing I'd like you to write down on your outline this morning, on the back of your bulletin there. Secular life. I'm going to use this word secular. A lot of people would argue with me about it, but we think of secular and spiritual. Secular being the life that is focused on things that aren't directly related to God. Spiritual, focusing on things that are directly related to God. Uh, if you want to argue about that, I love those kind of con- conversations. Um, just let me know, and I'll set up a time, and we'll do it. But this morning, just if you'll take my definitions, secular life can be productive and interesting. And, you know, I, I didn't even mention sports, cooking, sailing, hunting, hiking, culture and art. All of that stuff is just so rich. There's so much of it. It's really amazing. It can be so productive. It can be so interesting. I thought about putting this word on there, but I guess it fits in interesting. It can be so entertaining, and yet it can be what? Out of step with God. Out of step with God. Lamech was out of step with God. And a lot of time our culture, in our arts, in our technology, as interesting as it is, as productive as it is, as entertaining as it is, it's out of step with God. It's out of step uh, with God. Look back at, at the text again at uh, Lamech's poem. Lamech said to his wives, Aden Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. I want to just note a couple of things here that we should be on guard uh, about when it comes to dealing with our culture. There are signs in culture that it's out of step with God. And there's, at least, there's several of them here. Let's just look at a couple of them. The first one is the plural wives. Something went wrong between Genesis 2.24 and Lamech. Genesis 2.24 said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will be joined to his wives. Right? Wrong. To his wife. And the two will become one flesh. It didn't say that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wives and the group, whatever number it might be, will become one flesh. And so the first first indication that this culture was getting off track was uh, Lamech taking two wives. This is nothing unusual for us. 
We know all about efforts to redefine marriage. We've talked a lot about it in here. We are, uh, we've got the pedal to the metal when it comes to redefining marriage in our culture right now. We're looking for anything but Genesis 2.24 to celebrate and elevate and say that it's, it's great stuff. There's still good signs occasionally. Uh, take them when you can get them. I don't know how many of you noticed that recently a cable channel, uh, Oxygen, uh, was about to develop a show called All My Babies Mamas. Did you hear about that? All my babies, mamas, rapper Shoddy Low and his 11 children born of 10 women. Let that sink in for a minute. His 11 children born of 10 women, apparently all living together in a community in the same house, along with his new girlfriend, which I assume means there'll be 12 kids soon. And they're making a reality show out of this. Now, here's the good news. The good news is there were enough people who said, that's crazy. There were enough people that said, that's wrong. And I'll tell you what, one thing is hard to do today is to say that things are right or wrong. But enough people said, that's wrong, we shouldn't do that, people don't need to see that, that they actually canceled that show. Now, I hope that it never sees the light of day. Uh, so there are occasionally some, uh, some good things that happen. So here on your, on your uh, outline, be on guard. Be on guard against changing God's plan for family. Against changing God's plan for family. Now, we rail at the world for doing that. Let's make sure that we keep our house in order in the church. All right? We need to adopt God's plan for family ourselves and say that our, our marriages are worth fighting for. We need to say that our kids are our responsibility. It's, it's easy to throw rocks at the world, but we need to make sure that we give a good example, don't we? Be on guard against changing God's plan for family. So Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. He is boasting about his excessive revenge. Somebody hurt him and he killed them. You don't mess with me. I'll take you out, Lamech said. And he did. And he thought that was pretty cool. It's a pervasive attitude of revenge. And that's easy to fall into. That's, all, that's another warning sign that culture is having a deleterious effect on us, that it is pulling us down, that it's dragging us down. When we begin to lose our grip on God's grace, when we begin to say that I am going to take care of my own, don't you mess with me, I'll make you pay. And it doesn't have to be murder. It can be done in, in more subtle ways uh, as well. So be on your guard against, number two on your outline, the next line there, boasting about injustice, boasting about injustice. He also boasted about violence. We could have put that there as well. But what he did was not fair. Just because somebody hurt him, he killed that person. That's out of balance. If we can't be gracious, let's at least be fair, okay? Let's at least be fair. And then look at verse 24. His, he ends his poem up with two more lines. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, this is interesting. You know where he got this from, right? When Cain was arguing with God about his punishment because he had killed his brother, he said, my punishment's too heavy for me. This is not fair. You're not a fair God. 
Somebody's going to kill me. And God said, no, I'll protect your life. Your life is valued to me. I still love you. I still want you to turn to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a mark on you, the mark of Cain. And whoever sees that mark will know that if they kill you, they'll be avenged seven times over. Somehow or another, that story, that word of God as it was passed down from Cain to Enoch to Irad to Mahujael to Methujael to Lamech, when it got to Lamech, it had changed somehow. And he didn't get the message of what was really going on there. What was really happening is God was demonstrating his grace to Cain. And somehow or another, when Lamech got it, it was all twisted up. And he took it as meaning that he could go out and take vengeance on people 77 times if that's what it took. And so the word of God got twisted in all of this. That's not unusual. We live in a culture where God's word is, is right now, I hate to say this, but it's true, right now at this very hour uh, in churches all around the land, God's word is being twisted this morning to say things that it really doesn't. And those of you who are sitting in the pew have a lot of responsibility with this. You realize that, don't you? It's real easy to just go and say, well, we got a guy, we sent him to seminary, we paid him big bucks, he can come and tell us what to think and what the Bible says. Uh-uh. Who holds me responsible? Or the guy who's in the pulpit down the street or the one around the corner? We have a responsibility to God to teach what the Word says, but you have a responsibility to know whether or not it's being taught properly. How do you know that? Because you like the guy who's preaching? I'd like to think you like me. How do you know that? How do you, are you opening your Bible up? and reading it yourself, and studying it yourself. When I come to Genesis chapter 4, as we work through the book of Genesis, you, are, you realize now, after several months, that we're going through the book of Genesis. We started at chapter 1, verse 1, and we're in chapter 4 today. You, you see what's going on. You know chapter 5 is coming next, and says, unless something really strange happens. Are you reading the book of Genesis to find out? What it is we're going to talk about? Are you reading the book of Genesis to see if what I teach is actually in the Word of God? You have a responsibility to do that. We all do. Iron sharpens iron. We're responsible to one another for opening God's Word and making sure that I'm teaching it right and then that you go out into the community and share what we learn here without twisting uh, God's word. That's the next thing on your uh, outline. Be on guard against twisting the meaning of God's word. Twisting the meaning of God's word. We do need each other on this because it's very easy to read the word of God and twist it around to make it say whatever we want it to say, to support whatever lifestyle we've chosen to live. But we, we need to help each other on this. Verse 25, look what happens next. And Adam, back to Adam again. This chapter's not necessarily chronological. We go down the line of Cain for a while, and we see where that's going and what's happening there. And then the narrator brings us back to Adam again. He says, now, meanwhile, while all of this stuff is going on with Cain's descendants, here's what happens with the next son that Adam and Eve had. Adam lay with his wife again, verse 25, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Look what she says. God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. All three of her sons are still on her heart and her mind. She can't forget Abel. She loved him. He's dead. She'll never forget him. She can't forget Cain. Even though Cain is an outcast and he's a rebel, she still thinks about him too. And now she's got a third son. And his name 
His name is Seth. Verse 26, Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. Look at the way this chapter ends. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Cain's line was the secular line. Cain's line, a lot of interesting stuff going on in Cain's line, okay? Farming, cities, music, entertainment, poetry, metal working, technology, a little bit of murder thrown in, you know, just to keep things interesting. A little bit of sexual immorality, you know, sex and violence, right? It's way back at the beginning. All that's going on in Cain's line. And over here, this other line, uh, they're going to contribute what's missing. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth's line is going to remind humanity that worship is important. Worship is important. Number three on your outline, spiritual life. In the midst of all this secular stuff, if we're going to stay spiritual... We need to watch those warning signals, but we've got to do some positive things, too. And the first one is this. Spiritual life depends on worshiping regularly. It depends on worshiping regularly. Let me tell you what the secular world is doing to us. The technology, the art, uh, all of that stuff, it is pulling us away from worshiping God on a regular basis. It's pulling us away. Some of you know this. I'm, uh, I can remember from w- when I was a boy and being brought up in church that my parents uh, took me to Sunday school every Sunday morning and my siblings, and then we went to worship after that. And then we came back for an hour of Bible study uh, after we uh, had the afternoon, and then we had a worship service together in the evening. And then a lot of times there was a choir practice or something else after that. And then on Wednesday nights we came to the church and we ate and we went to uh, a Bible study or a prayer meeting or RAs or GAs. And then there may have been a choir practice after that. And then uh, throughout the year there was, um, RA, uh, there was vacation Bible school. There were, uh, there were preachers who came in and preached revivals uh, and on and on and on and on and on. And I thought many, many times the number of hours that we spent pursuing spirituality as a boy would blow most of us completely out of the water today. It just doesn't even make sense anymore. There are some, of, some families in this church who come pretty close to doing what I, just designed, what I just outlined. But it's hard, isn't it? Most don't. We're being dragged away. We're being pulled away. There's other things. There's other things in this culture around us. The siren song of the culture. Our hearts are pulled to these other things. They seem so important. And Seth's line is there as a reminder. We've got to worship God on a regular basis. If we don't, we start to slip away. We start to slip into all of this other stuff. And and look how it ends. It ends with God's name. The whole chapter ends with God's name, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, those four letters in ancient Greek that stand for God's name. And when you look at your English Bible there, uh, it should have Lord, but it should have small caps uh, instead of just regular letters because that reminds us that in the Masoretic text, the ancient Hebrew text, that that's where the personal name of God appears. And the Jews uh, uh, were so scared to say his name out loud at some point, they just quit writing it down. They quit saying it. They started putting something different in there. And we've, we've picked that 
that up over the years, but his name is there. They began to call on his name. Uh, Beshem, Shem is name. Buck can mean in, with, or by. This is kind of a confusing sentence. It's very thick. It's very rich. There's really more there than we can put in any one English sentence. We either have to say that he was calling, that they were calling on the name of God, which most of our English translations do, or we have to say that they were calling in the name of God. In other words, as they went throughout the uh, culture, they would call uh, out things in the name of God, uh, or we could say that they were calling with the name of God, that they were named by God's name. There's a lot of different ways to look at this. It's very thick and rich, but God's personal name was a big part of what they were doing. They were calling on, in, with, by the name of God, Yahweh. They knew his personal name. In the Old Testament, a name is very important. I love watching y'all have kids, especially naming your kids. I'm always curious. I wonder what they'll name this one. Now, I'm always curious where you get the names from. I know you have reasons. We had reasons when we named Andy. One of the reasons was that uh, uh, Karen was passed out and couldn't argue with me, so I got to name him. But in the Old Testament especially, the name was, it really stood for the person. And uh, it meant something. To know somebody's name, to use somebody's name. And when it says here, to call on the name of the Lord, it meant that they knew Yahweh. It was, it was personal. Finish writing up your, your bulletin uh, outline here. Spiritual life depends on knowing God personally. Knowing God personally. Sunday night, I finish up standing right here. Sunday's the first day of the week, but it's hard for me to think of Sunday as the first day of the week. I I think of it as the last day of the week because I prepare for it all week long. Later tonight, God willing, I'll begin to think about next Sunday, and I'll think about next Sunday all week long. Tomorrow morning, unless something strange happens, my week will begin right where I'm standing right now. I won't be standing, though. I'll be on my knees. My week starts right here. And it starts with a piece of paper in my hands. And that piece of paper has your name on it, every one of you who are in here, unless you're here for the very first time. And your name is on that list, on that piece of paper. And I pray for every single one of you by name. I know your name, and you know my name. But that is not just letters on a piece of paper to me, because we have spent time together. Some of us have known each other now for more than a decade. And we have spent enough time with each other to know things about each other's lives. So that when I pray for you, it's not just a generic prayer. It's a prayer about the things that are happening in your life. It's a prayer about the things that are important to you. It's a prayer about the things that I know that you're struggling with, that you have shared with me. Over the last 10 years, I've watched on that sheet of paper as some names went away. There were people who were sitting in this room 10 years ago, and they're not here anymore. They've gone on to be with the Lord, and their name's not on that sheet anymore. I've watched as I've put the letters E-X-P period behind the names of couples to remind me that you're expecting. And I began to pray for your unborn child. And it's a thrill to be able to put a line through that E-X-P and write a name. Below it, Molly, Becca, 
and to begin to pray for that person by name. Sometimes I've had to put a line through the EXP and not put a name because there was a miscarriage. And we've shared those moments together too. But we know one another because we're willing to invest time in each other's life. And the line of Seth understood that if we're going to know God, we have to spend time with him. There's no other way to do it. If we don't, he's nothing more than a name in a book. He's not personal to us. And he is worth knowing. Would you bow your heads with me? Do you know God personally? God wants us to know him personally. It's so important to him that he sent Jesus to break down the barriers that keep us from knowing him. And the main barriers are sin, our disobedience, our rebelliousness of wanting to do things our own way and not have God in control of our life. But Jesus Christ enabled us to break that barrier down. He died on a cross so that we can be forgiven of all of that sin and rebellion and running away from God, and we can come back and be restored to God just like the prodigal son. And not restored as a second-class citizen, but restored as a son or a daughter in a relationship where we can know God and spend time with him and know his characteristics better and his personality better and know what to expect from him better and how to pray and talk to him better. Do you have that? Have you started that relationship? Our invitation this morning, first of all, is for you to initiate that relationship with God if you never have. In other words, to be saved, to be forgiven of your sin, to come and to become a follower of Jesus, to become a person who is seeking God in your life. If you've never done that, and you know you need to, you want to, God's Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, urging you. That's saying, that's you, you need to do that. And while we sing in just a moment, I want you to slip out of your seat and just walk up here and speak with me or somebody who's with me, and, and we'll just sit and, and pray with you and tell you how to, how to do that. Maybe you need to make another decision this morning. Maybe it's time to get baptized. Come and let me know. If, if you need to join the church, would you come and let me know? Or maybe you just need to come and get on your knees and pray to the God whom you know already. The altar is open. You do that too. Father, we thank you. We see that there's been this secular world from the very beginning. And there are a lot of great things in the world. A lot of it is a gift from you. But it's not a gift if it pulls us away from you. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on what really matters. Help us, God, to say yes to you and what your spirit is crying out to us to do. Help us now in this time of invitation and decision to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. You come. Don't wait.